Um, we will, this morning we'll be in the book of Hebrews this morning, looking primarily at chapter number one, which we'll, where, we, where we will be studying today. We will probably spend a little time this morning uh, talking more a little bit about introducing the book of Hebrews, um, just some unique things to be aware of whenever you're looking at the book of Hebrews. And then we'll try and maybe get a couple of, uh, a couple of lessons there out of chapter one, maybe into chapter two this morning. And then we'll continue moving forward. For those that are joining us as visitors uh, this morning, uh, last year, the class, we took a, uh, a survey or a poll of what everyone's favorite chapter of the Bible is. If, if you're going to read through the Bible, what is one chapter you will not miss, you always look forward to? And so we got a bunch of, uh, a bunch of uh, feedback. And so each week we've been looking at uh, the 52 most popular. Um, certainly every chapter is important, every verse is important, every word is important. But voted upon by this class, the 52 favorite chapters, and Hebrews chapter 1 was written down, so we'll be going through that today. Let's talk a little bit about the book of Hebrews um, and, uh, and kind of maybe help set a little bit of context on what we're looking at this morning. Um, the, as far as the human penman, uh, certainly I believe it's obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, but as far as the human penman for the book of Hebrews is a little bit unknown. There's a lot of different uh, uh, opinions, uh, and I will go through a couple this morning briefly. There's certainly the opinion that uh, it was Paul, and there's very, very good reasons to believe that. You, you'll find within the book of Hebrews many common phrases that Paul uses in his other epistles are repeated in the book of Hebrews. And uh, so some people, for that reason, they will, they will say that Paul was the, the author. There's some uh, that think Timothy, maybe it might even been the human penman, um, that, uh, that wrote uh, this book. And then there's some people that think it was Apollos. Uh, once again, you know, we, could, we could disagree on that. It doesn't change the truth that it's God's word. Um, if, if, you, if you would like, for what it's worth, if you'd like my best guess on it, um, uh, I think there are, there are enough differences in this letter that's written uh, versus others that Paul had wrote that I, I'm not sure that Paul is the human penman. Uh, just look at the other, uh, the other letters we have written or recorded in Scripture. Um, Paul usually is, um, he does spend a lot of time talking about individuals. He's, it's not, it's very, you know, in almost every other, well, every other uh, book that he's attributed to, he, his name is in it. So for him not to put his name in there um, is a little unusual. There could be good reasons for that, um, and, and we won't take time to go into all those today. Uh, another reason maybe why um, uh, I, would, I would believe that it, there's, there's enough differences. Uh, in all of Paul's other uh, epistles, um, what we find in, 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 as far as what's been preserved and then what we see, what we see in church history they were all written in Koine Greek, which was the common man's tongue. It's kind of how they spoke in the streets at the market. Hebrews were not written in Koine Greek. It was written in a, a much higher level of Greek that was re usually reserved for governmental type of documents, uh, those types of things, business transactions. So kind of think about legalese whenever you see contracts. That was the difference between uh, the way Hebrews is written versus some of Paul's other um, letters. Apollos, um, it's even recorded in Scripture. He was someone that a lot of people looked to that he spoke with. A lot of understanding, the Bible tells us. So uh, anyway, the point is not really to uh, determine this morning who wrote the book of Hebrews or who was inspired, but that the Holy Spirit recorded these scriptures for us. And the theme of it is, the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So kind of going back to the context of when this was written, um, this, this uh, letter was written to Hebrews that were in Judea in this time. Um, perhaps maybe some other expanded territories, but primarily these people that were living in and around Jerusalem in this early time. And let's talk about what happened to them at the time of Christ for these Jews. So um, Jesus comes on the scene. 
in, in, in most instances, Jesus was rejected by the Jews. He was, uh, obviously, he was crucified. He was, um, he was buried. Uh, they did not want anything, anything to do with G, uh, Jesus. Most of the Jews, especially those that were religious, those that were the scribes, the Pharisees, they were in opposition to Jesus. We looked at some scriptures recently where people tried to catch him and, you know, try and trick him with questions and try and get him to give the wrong answer. And so he didn't have a lot of fans during his earthly ministry. And then, and then something miraculous happens. Uh, Jesus uh, rose from the dead, and it, and it verifies all that he had told them up to this point, that I'm the son of God, that you're going to destroy me, and I'll rise myself up again in three days. All the things that he told them ca- came true. And so now what you find, uh, fast forward to the book of Acts, day of Pentecost, the exact same people that were persecuting Jesus are now coming to Peter and saying, what can we do to be saved? We've made a terrible, a terrible decision. We have rejected the Messiah. What should we do? How can we be saved? They're coming to Peter on the day of Pentecost. So these same people that rejected him have now accepted him. Now, what does that mean for them? Well, it means their entire life has changed now. Everything that they had done up to that point in time, uh, as far as practicing religion, has been fulfilled. It's been, it's been, it's been fulfilled in the life of Christ. Now there's a new way that we can worship uh, uh, God and Jesus Christ. We don't have to worship him. Uh, well, let's, let's look in the book of Jeremiah. It gives us a good example of what's, what's going on here. But if you turn in your, in your Bible to the book of Jeremiah, chapter number 31, and you're going to see a promise that's given to Jeremiah about a new covenant that is going to be given um, to God's people in Jeremiah, chapter number 31. And we'll look at verses 31 through 33 here. Jeremiah 31, it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, to which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, saith the Lord. I will put my law on their inward parts, and I will write in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So he's giving a promise, saying, Listen, you couldn't live up to the law. The only thing the law can do is condemn you. It can show you where you're wrong. And we couldn't keep the law, even in our best day, we couldn't keep the law. And so God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And this is going to be a different, where it's not going to be made of stone, like he gave to them whenever they came out of the land of Egypt. And they crossed over and it gave them stone tablets, a law they could not keep. I'm going to give you a new covenant I'm going to write upon your heart. And my Holy Spirit will be inside of you. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us, we'll look over here in the book of Hebrews in uh, uh, chapter number 8. It shows us that that covenant has been fulfilled in the New Testament, in Jesus Christ. And what does it say here in Hebrews chapter number 8, in verses 8 through 11? Uh, For finding fault with them, he saith, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, and the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law into their mind and write uh, them upon their heart, and I will be unto them a God, and they shall be to my people. And so he's telling them that there's a new covenant that's coming in the book of Jeremiah. And in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that covenant was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? It means that they don't, they don't need the temple anymore. Right. 
They don't need the daily sacrifice anymore. They don't need the priest. They have a great high priest, not like other type of priests. They have a, an uncorrupted high priest named Jesus Christ. And so all those things they were accustomed to, they're all gone. On, on the Sabbath, Saturday morning when they get up, they don't have to go to the temple anymore. I mean, just imagine trying to put yourself in those shoes. Sunday morning, some of us, are, it's like clockwork. You don't have to think about what you're doing. Your body just goes into automatic pilot, and you get ready to go to church on Sunday morning. What if, what if we found out, you know, some miraculous, you know, now this won't happen, but I'm just saying it's a miraculous revelation. We don't have to come to church on Sunday anymore and do all this. It'd be a shock to the system, wouldn't it? You'd be like, what are we supposed to do now? What, what are we, what are we supposed, because once again, we've talked about this before. It is easy, it is easy to, well, uh, there's comfort in, in rules, there's comfort in rules, like, you give me a rule, like, uh, you know, don't, don't push this button, okay, I have some, I have some, uh, I have some, uh, some comfort in knowing uh, exactly where the line is drawn, what I can and can't do, and there's comfort, uh, well, the way some people put it this, uh, put it this way is, um, uh, clarity is kindness, right, the more clear you can be to somebody when you're trying to tell them what to do and what not to do, the kinder you are, right, uh, it's very easy just to follow the letter of the law, and completely miss the spirit of the law. Um, so, so, so God is saying, look, it's not enough just to keep the letter of the law. I'm going to have a new covenant with you that I'm going to put inside your heart. And it's not enough just to keep the outward exterior religious things that are very comfortable. It's, it's, it's much easier to follow the, the rules of a man than to follow the will of God. Because to follow the will of God, you have to be in communion with God. You have to be listening to God. You have to be able to, to have him guide you. And you have to be submissive to him. Whereas if a man just makes some rules and says, hey, these are the ten rules we're going to have and we're going we're we're to live by, well, that's much easier because now it's all just spelled in black and white. It doesn't take as much faith as what I'm saying. It doesn't take as much faith. And so there's this new covenant that he's given to us. And all these things that we were doing before, which had a purpose, but they were just an image or, or they were just a, a shadow or a picture of what was to come, they didn't have to live that way anymore. And then on top of that, on top of that, let's just talk about specifically these Christians um, that, uh, that were maybe living in Jerusalem or the, the areas right around Jerusalem. Uh, very similar to the, the people that live in Jefferson City. Most people that live in our area of, the, of Missouri, around the capital, most people are employed by the state. Most of us have a family member that works for the state or in some kind of government capacity. Our neighbors, our, our friends, our family, they work for the state. Um, and, they're, and, they're, and, they're, and, they're, and their livelihood is provided by the, by the taxpayers that pay taxes that fund the state. The very same thing was true in Jerusalem. There wasn't, you didn't have, you know, 20 acres in the middle of town that you farmed and lived off of. You didn't have the resources. The people that lived inside of Jerusalem primarily worked for the government or they worked in some kind of religious capacity. So once again, let's kind of go back. Let's put yourself in, those, in their shoes. Um, they've, they've been just practicing Judaism for thousands of years. It's all that they know. Uh, and, now, and now they don't have to practice, they don't have to take the sacrifice of the temple anymore. They probably think, we're going to get in trouble if we don't. I'm, I, I don't know what to do. What are we supposed to do? They probably didn't know, they didn't know what to do. They needed instruction. And on top of that, let's just say that you were a Jew in those days, that you practiced faithfully religious uh, Judaism, and then you decide, I, I'm now a Christian. I believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Hey, guess what? That job you had in the government, you don't have that job anymore. That, that job you had working at the temple, if you're, if you're not a Jew and you're not doing the Jewish things, you can't be there anymore. They lost their livelihood. Um, 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth saying, we need to take up an offering for the Christians in Jerusalem. 
because they, don't, they, can't, they can't take care of themselves. And in 2 Corinthians, those great chapters, chapters 8 and 9 about giving, it's Paul reminding them, hey, you made a commitment to give an offering to the church, of, the people hurting in Jerusalem. They can't take care of themselves. They've lost their jobs because they're taking a stand for Christ. And don't forget about your commitment to give that offering to them. This is what was going on to these people living in Judea and Judea, Jerusalem as they're trying to live faithfully for Jesus Christ, coming out of Judaism. And wouldn't it be easy just to go back to the way things were before? That would fix all of our problems. Let's just go back to how things were before, and I'll get my job back, and everything will be fine, and we won't be ostracized by our community, and we can just go back to the way things were, and everything will be fine. And so this is the context where we're not sure who it was, whether it was Paul or Timothy or Apollos or somebody else for that matter, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write instruction to tell them, why would you go back to something worse? What you have now is so much better. This is the theme of the book of Hebrews. This is what is going on in this time. Probably this was written prior to the destruction of the, of the temple. Um, if you know uh, Jewish history in 70 AD, there was a there was a, well, even prior to that, there was an uprising, there was a revolt. Um, the Jews were revolting, trying to force Rome out of uh, Jerusalem. And so finally, Rome gets tired of, you know, messing around with these people always revolting. So they send a general by the name of Titus to come, and, and Titus takes care of business. I mean, he wipes Jerusalem off the face of the planet, destroys the temple, exactly what Jesus said when he prophesied on the, Sur- uh, on the temple mount when he said, tear this temple down, or he said in three days, or I'm sorry, he says there will not be one stone left upon another, talking about the, t- the temple in that day, and sure enough, whenever Rome came, and, and General Titus came, and they came to Jerusalem, um, they destroyed the temple, they set it on fire, and when they set it on fire, all of the ornamental gold that was inside there began to begin to melt, and it began to settle in between the rocks themselves, and the, and the Romans didn't want to leave any gold behind, so they literally forced every single rock off, off, off top of one another just to get all the gold out of there. Exactly what Jesus said, not one rock will stand on top of another uh, whenever judgment comes to this area, and that's what happened. And, 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 and interestingly enough, the Colosseum that is even the, the, remnant, the, remnant, the remnants of it in Rome today, that was funded in great part by the gold that came out of the temple. They took the gold from the temple, and that's where they built the Colosseum in Rome and many of the other um, things that we see even in, in, that are left over from the great wonders of the, of the Roman world came through funding from that gold that they found there in the temple. Right. And so these people, uh, I'm, what I'm saying is if that had taken place, if they had destroyed the temple prior to the book of Hebrews, it would have been recorded in some capacity. I mean, if the, whole, if the whole book is about don't go back to Judaism, don't go back to the temple, he could have just written, and by the way, the temple was destroyed. It's kind of a little a message from God. You don't have to keep going back to the temple anymore, but that's not recorded. So this probably took place before the, the General Titus came to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Um, but but uh, what you find in the book of Hebrews, this, this theme that Jesus is better, you find a few words that are repeated again and again and again throughout the entire book of Hebrews. And we're going to look at the first one being the word better. And if you go back to Hebrews chapter number one, you'll see in verse number four, this first time this word better is recorded. It says here in chapter one to verse four, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Speaking about Jesus, and we'll talk about this in a moment, saying that Jesus is better than the angels. And so there's this, instru- or this, uh, this uh, doctrinal truth that is given to these early Christians, uh, formerly Jewish uh, following all the religious uh, and rituals of Judaism, and now they're practicing Christianity, and he's saying that Jesus is better than even the angels, and that we shouldn't be worshiping angels. Turn to chapter number six, 
In verse number 9, you see this word better repeated again. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we speak thus. In chapter number 7, in verse number 7, and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. The, the author here is trying to make a comparison. He's saying what you have now, even though it comes with opposition, even though it comes with um, you know, losing your job, losing your livelihood, even though you've lost the comfort of all your religious traditions, what you have now is better. He's using this, frame, this phrase again and again. In verse number 19 of that same chapter, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. So the law couldn't make you perfect. It could only reveal that you weren't perfect. But now we have something better brought to us by Jesus Christ. In verse number 22, by so much uh, was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And this is comparing an Old Testament um, individual by the name of Melchizedek and comparing Jesus to him and being a better high priest. And look at chapter number 8, verse number 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Amen. So now we have a new, a better covenant or a better testament. And, and this is not, this is not um, uncommon if you look through uh, the word of God where God speaks to men in different ways. This is, this is exactly what you see unfolding in Scripture. If you go back to Genesis chapter number 1 through 3, that would you find the way that God communicates with man? How did you do that? The Bible says that in the cool of the day, that Adam and God walked together in the cool of, of the day in the garden. That's how God communicated with man there in, in, in Genesis 1 through 3. But then you find that things change. Adam and Eve ate of that tree of forbidden, uh, that was forbidden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now God begins to communicate with them in a different way. And how does he communicate with them after that? He doesn't commute with them, communicate with them in the cool of the day in the garden. He communicates with them through an angel with a fiery sword that's guarding the, 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 the gate to the entrance of the Garden of Eden to keep them out. And if you continue to read through the Bible, you see that God communicates with men in different ways. And that's essentially what the Bible is saying is there's a, a new way that God's communicating that's so much better than what we had before. The Old Testament couldn't make you perfect. It couldn't make you righteous. It couldn't make you fit to be saved. It could only reveal that you could not save yourself. And then you had these, you had these um, ongoing, never-ending sacrifices that took place in the temple. And certainly on the Day of Atonement, there was a, a great uh, um, uh, offering or sacrifice made for the sins of the nation. But even besides that, every day continually, always before God, was a sacrifice being made by these priests. But guess what? It was never sufficient. It had to continue over and over and over. And now the author is saying, you have something better. Don't go back to that false religion or, not, or that dead religion that can't save you. Don't go back to the way that you were before. And so you see this word repeated again and again and again, that what they gained in Christ far outweighs anything they lost in their religion. Amen. You have not sacrificed anything to be a Christian. You have, you have not gotten the short end of the stick <laughs> by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You're not just getting by in this life if you're a Christian. You know, the people that are lost, that don't have, they don't even know what living is. They haven't experienced true living. And what, and what the penman here in the book of Hebrews is saying, what you have now is so much better than what you have before. And you've not lost one thing by giving up that dead religion that can't save you. You've not given up one thing by practicing those old rituals. You've not given up one thing by being forsaken by your friends and your family in this life because you have something so much better. You have Jesus Christ now. 
And so this first message that he has for them is this word of better. What you have is better. You know, I, uh, you know, I've been in church long enough, and you've probably heard it too. You know, I've, uh, and, I, and, I, and I understand the sentiment. I'm not, I'm not criticizing or anything of that nature. But, you know, there have been people, especially uh, ministers, that have said, you know, I had a six-figure job. And I gave it up to go to Bible college to become a missionary, to become a pastor. I've heard, I've heard that said in church many times growing up. And I understand the sentiment. There was, listen, I'm not saying that that's, a, that's not a, a considerable uh, decision point in a man's life. Don't misunderstand me. I, I wish there was, we had uh, more men that had that courage that I'll give up on all the ease of this life to, to, to follow Christ with all my heart. But, but you didn't give up anything to follow Christ. You, you didn't sacrifice one thing. A, 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 a mentor, a mentor, uh, a, a man that I dearly beloved, that I, I, that I, 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 uh, that I, I, uh, well, I wish, I wish I did more often, but like I had a time to talk, a very wise man, a, a man that I have a lot of respect for in the faith, a minister, a pastor, and his testimony, I've heard him give it many times, is he could have made millions of dollars selling phone book covers. And, and, he, and he, he had an opportunity, this was back when people had phone books, like not, not anymore, but... But he had an opportunity to run a business where he would sell the ads on the exterior phone book and be able to p- potentially make a millionaire. And the man that he was doing business with became a millionaire doing it. And he tells a story that he, he went to a hotel room, I think it was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on his knees. And he was trying, he, he said he put the phone book on one side and a Bible on the other. And he said, God, I want to follow you. What's your will for my life? And he says that he, he forsook the millions and picked up the Bible. And that's a great story. I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish that one bit. What I'm saying is that he didn't lose anything making that choice. He didn't give up anything making that choice to follow God. And so what we have now is better. And what we gained in Christ, far out, what, far out what, uh, in religion or ritual, are those things that came before. And that's true for us in our life when it comes to what you left before you found Christ. We left sin, didn't we? We left slavery of this world. We left all those things behind and, and we should never go back. What does Jesus say to the, to the disciples? He says, uh, look, once you put your hand to the plow, there's no looking back. Or else he says, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. That's what he says. Once you put your hand to the plow, you don't look back because you'll be a misfit. You'll be a misfit. You won't fit in either place. You can't, you can't have your hand to the plow and looking back at the world and, and plow, a straight, plow a straight line. You can't do it. You'll be all over the place. And, and you can't be enjoying the things of the world and trying to plow in the field. And so... What Jesus is saying is you can't be in two places, and if you try to, you're just nothing but a misfit. You're not fit for the kingdom of God. You've got to pick one or the other. And what we have in Jesus Christ is so much better than what we had before. It's better. It's better. But not just the word better is used over and over, but also another word you find repeated again and again in the book of Hebrews is the word heavenly. Let's go back to chapter number 1 and verse number 10. This word heaven or heavenly is repeated again and again. In verse number 10, and now... Lord in the beginning hath last the foundation hath hath hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. In chapter number three, verse number one, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Look at chapter four, verse number fourteen. Uh, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. If you continue to look at chapter number 6 and verse number 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. And so you see this word heavenly repeated 
again and again. And, and there's many other times in, in this book that is this listed. We won't take time to mention them all this morning. But this word, not just better, is used over and over, but heavenly. And what is the, what's the point of this? What is the, the, the human penman, the Holy Spirit, trying to communicate to us as we're reading this? Is he saying, uh, stop living your life for earthly things and live your life for heavenly things. You've been given a heavenly reward. You've been given a heavenly treasure. Um, uh, the Apostle Paul himself says that, I, think it's, I believe it's in 2 Corinthians, that we should not look on the, temporal, on the visible things because they're temporal. We should not live our lives living according to visible things, what you can see. But he says, but, but live for those things which are, are invisible and those are incorruptible. Those last, they're eternal. We've got everything completely backwards in our lives. We focus on the visual, the things we can see, and those are only temporal. And we forsake the heavenly things, which are the eternal things. And so in this, in this letter, you see this uh, communication, this reminder again and again that we should not live our life for earthly things. We should live our life for heavenly things. Those things which are true, those things which are eternal, those things which really matter. If you had a chance to talk to Miss Mary this morning, to tell us about the things that really matter, it wouldn't be earthly things. She wouldn't be saying, oh, listen, one more time, guys, before you leave this earth, oh, you got to try dot, dot, dot. None of her conversation to us, if we could talk to Miss Mary right now, would have anything to do about this world. She would spend all of her time talking about things that matter, that are real, that are true, that are eternal, and those are heavenly things. And, and it's very easy for us, uh, guilty as charged myself, to get caught up in the things that we can see because that's all we can see. <laughs> and what you spend your time thinking about, what you spend your time dwelling on, what you spend your time laying your eyes on, that's what's going to take over your thoughts. And that's what's going to take over your, your, your passions. That's what's going to take over your actions. That's what's going to take over your hobbies. And that's what eventually will take over your life. And so again and again, the author is saying, don't, don't, don't be deceived. Don't fall into this trap of thinking that only the things you can see are the things that matter. Because I'm going to be talking to you about some things that you think you're going to be a sacrifice. You think you're going to be given up. But no, no, you have things that are better. But the problem is we're looking at the wrong things. We look at earthly things, and so we flee to the comfort of those earthly things because they're comfortable to us and because we know them and they're familiar to us. But the author says, don't focus on the earthly things. Think on those things that are better, those heavenly things, those things that are worth giving up whatever you're holding on in this life. You've heard this illustration before about the little boy that he was playing and he knew he, knew he shouldn't be messing with mom's you know, nice pottery and her vases, but he was playing with one of the vases and he got his hand stuck inside the vase and they couldn't get it out. And so they were trying to get this boy to move his hand in different directions because they didn't want to damage the vase. It was a very precious thing to them. And they were trying to figure out how to get his hand out. And they turned it and they, and they poured hot water on it. They got soapy water and they tried all they could and they could not get his hand out of this vase. And so eventually the, the dad comes to the conclusion the only way he's going to get his hand out is to break the vase. And so they get the boy and they lay his hand on a table, cover it with towels, do the best they can to protect him. And the dad, as gently as he can, begins tapping on the vase until it breaks and whenever they pull back the towel and the pieces of pottery, they see a little boy, and he had his hand tight, uh, clenched tightly in a fist. And they asked him, they said, did you have your hand clenched tightly in a fist the whole time we were trying to get your hand out? And he said, of course. I'm holding a penny. I didn't want to lose my penny I had in my hand. 
And, and, and the point of that story is as Christians, we're holding on to that little sin in our hand we won't let go of, and it causes us to miss out on the better things. That precious vase, this precious gift of your salvation that God has given to us, and we hold on to those things that don't matter, that are worthless, and we destroy those things that are precious. And so you see this word repeated again and again, not just that we have a better thing, that Jesus is better, not just this word heavenly. Because once again, I mean, you know, uh, well, what's the, the old, the old, the old, uh, the old hymn, hymn that we sing, I don't know the name of it, but it says, the arm of flesh will fail you. Don't think about, don't, don't put your confidence in, in earthly, carnal, fleshly things. Put your confidence in heavenly things. Those things will not fail you. What will fail you is, is my own strength. That's what's going to leave me in a terrible spot whenever I think I, I got this figured out. I know what I'm doing. I don't need to obey God, let alone listen to his instruction or guidance in my life. I can do it on my own. And then where does that lead us? You know where that leads us. It leads us to terrible situations. How do we, how do we get here? Well, we were, we were doing things our way based upon what we could see visually, what we had comfort in, what we, what we had knowledge about. But we didn't want to mess with faith. Oh, no. <laughs> Where would that lead me? <laughs> Where would that lead me if I actually lived by faith? Oh, man, that'd be terrible. And we follow what we can see, what we can visually see. And I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to make a lie to this. This is, this is, a, uh, this is, a, this is that, that hard Christian living. It's easy to talk about and it's easy for me to teach about and it's hard to live. To truly live by faith. To truly set aside what I think is best. E even if I have experience in it. And to set that aside and say, well, no, but God, I will follow you. And I will focus on heavenly things, not, not earthly things. And so then you see this um, word heavenly repeated. And then, and then you see one more word that is repeated very prominently in this, in this book. And that's the word once. The word once, if you have Hebrews chapter 6 open there, Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. And I, let me just say, because this is, I've referenced this verse a couple of times, and this is, I don't know about you, but growing up, uh, reading the Bible, and especially whenever I'd read through the scripture or whatever, it would cause me to have some doubts about eternal security and about salvation and about if you're saved, if you truly put your faith in Jesus Christ, can you lose your salvation? And so... The point this morning was not to, to talk about this verse, but since we've, since we've read it, we, I will take a moment, we'll talk about it just for a, a, bit, a bit. My point is, the word once is what's repeated, but we, we'll come back to this, but I want to go through the word once here quickly, quickly this morning, but we'll come back to this. So, you see this word once mentioned here, also chapter number 7 and verse number 27, um, it says here, "...who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once." When he offered up himself, talking about Jesus Christ, whenever he offered himself. It, once again, back in those days, the priest had to continually offer sacrifices all the time before God. Always offering a sacrifice. 24-7, 365 days a year, nonstop, every day, act, offering sacrifices up to God continually. And now they're saying, but Jesus only offered sacri that sacrifice once. This word is repeated again and again. Uh, let's go to chapter number 8 and verse number 1. Now the things which we have spoken... Uh, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne in the majesties of heaven, uh, a minister for the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord has pitched, and not a man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessary that this man have somewhat also to offer. 
For if he were on earth, he, would, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example of the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses had admonished of God when he was about to make uh, the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. And you see over and over again, this word once is repeated in Scripture. We'll look at one more, uh, chapter 10, verse number 2. Um, for then he... Uh, for then they would not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. And then uh, it's mentioned again in verse number 10, uh, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So you see this word repeated again and again. So you see the word better repeated, you see the word heavenly repeated, and you see the word once repeated. And in most of those uh, texts that we read, uh, he was using this word once because prior to Jesus Christ, there was this continual offering of sins because there was no sacrifice that was truly sufficient to cover the sins of mankind. There was no true sacrifice. There was no truly sufficient. They could actually do the task it was called to do. There was no sacrifice up to that point that could be offered until Jesus Christ came. And whenever Jesus Christ came, he was sufficient. He is sufficient in the book of Revelation to open the book. He was sufficient to be offered as a sacrifice. He was sufficient to be proclaimed the Savior of all mankind. And so whenever he came and he was offered, he only had to do it once. It didn't require that it had to be done again and again and again. And this verse that we looked at, which we'll look at again back in chapter number 6, this is exactly what the author is talking about. Now let's read through this, and I'll tell you, maybe incorrectly what I thought is growing up what I thought it was saying and then I'll do my best to try and communicate what I believe what the text is telling us in this portion of scripture about offering sacrifices after you've been saved and so we'll go back and we'll look at verse number four in chapter six for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and to have and who have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. So as I'm reading through that, I'm reading and I'm thinking, this is talking about a saved person. This is what I think it's talking about. If you read it again, that it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Amen. It's talking about somebody that's saved, not somebody that's lost. Um, it goes on to say, verse number six, if they shall fall away. Now, what were we talking about in the book of Hebrews? What was the danger of them falling back into? Falling back into dead religion. Falling back into dead rituals that don't accomplish anything because the, the priest had to offer those continually because there was no sufficient offering. Nothing was ever going to get the job done. So you just, basically all they were doing was kicking the can down the road. That's all they were doing. On the Day of Atonement, they really didn't atone for anything. They just kicked the can down the road until the atonement would happen one day. They were in faith, trusting the Messiah would come and the atonement would take place full and complete atonement that was sufficient. But they didn't have that in the Old Testament. So it was continually offering those. And so the danger for them was don't go back into that dead worship that can't do anything. It can't save you. If they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed receiveth blessings from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is not under cursing whose end, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. 
So as I read this, uh, uh, not knowing exactly what the Bible was talking about, reading it, I'm thinking two things. I'm thinking, first of all, well, I guess I, I can be saved and I can fall back. And I guess I, I, guess I can lose my salvation. But uh, my dear friend, I would, I would point us back to salvation, to Calvary itself, and ask the question, well, what did I do to be saved? I didn't do anything to be saved. There's no thing I could do to be saved. The only thing I can do is put my faith in Jesus Christ to call upon God out of a heart of mercy and say, would you forgive me of my sins and save me and put my faith in Jesus Christ? And that's all that I could do to be saved if you even do anything at all. That's not really do anything. That's just, that's just taking advantage of the, of the provision God has made, a provision of salvation for those that put their faith in Jesus Christ. So what can I do to lose my salvation? I didn't do anything to get it. Christmas is coming up. We're going to have Christmas, hopefully Christmas at the McElroy house. I'm expecting big things out of the kids this year. I'm expecting, uh, you know, uh, all-time great Christmas gifts. But, it, but if my kids came out and said, hey, Dad, we got a gift for you, but before, before you get the gift, we need you to mow the grass, that's not a gift anymore. Right. It ceased to be a gift. Now I'm earning it. And if, listen, if you've earned your salvation, you probably can lose it. But we've done nothing to earn our salvation. Well, okay, maybe it doesn't mean that, but maybe what it means is, well, let me ask you this. I mean, if, 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 if you read this the way that it has it here in the Word of God, let's just say that's true. Let's say you can be saved and you can lose your salvation. According to this, it says it's impossible. If they've fallen away, they can't be saved again. Is that true? Uh, here, here's, what the, here's what I believe the Bible teaches from cover to cover. That salvation has nothing to do with me. And my performance and my ability and my work has everything to do with God and his mercy and his grace. And I can't do anything to get salvation. I can't earn it. And therefore, I can't do anything to lose it. I can't cease to do the good works and lose my salvation. Once you are saved, you are saved eternally. I don't don't know how else to describe everlasting life. I don't know how else to describe eternal life. So what's being communicated here to these people? It's saying exactly what we've been talking about the entire time, which is you cannot obtain salvation through dead religion and dead works and uh, and sacrificing animals. There's nothing, there's no, there's no salvation that you can find in that. You can only find salvation in Jesus Christ. And so don't go back to those dead ways that you, don't fall back to those things. Continue to go forward. Don't go back to dead religion that can't save anyone, that can't that can't bring you in right relationship with God, that can't forgive your sins, but put your faith in Jesus Christ because he was sufficient, and it only takes once. Uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, um, in, in the scripture that we read, it says that he sat down, talking about after the great high priest offered up, he sat down. There's no, there's no chairs in the temple in the Old Testament. But in in heaven, in that temple, there's a chair because the work of the priest is done. There's a place to rest because that that work has been done. The price was paid upon the cross of Calvary. And we can rest in Jesus Christ because he's better. And we should be focused on heavenly things because our salvation is taken care of because we had a great high priest. Not like the priest that had to offer up sacrifices continually, but the priest that could offer a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of all men. We will look at one last scripture and be done here this morning. Um, Jesus uh, talking about this priest that 
is, is, uh, is in heaven that is better than any human priest and what this priest did for us. That this priest was a superior person. And in chapter number two, Find this verse here. He uses an interesting word. He uses this word secure us. If you look in uh, chapter 2, we'll read verses. Uh, we'll begin in verse number 5. And, well, and then we'll skip down to 18. It says, um, For an angels hath he not put in subjection to the world to come, whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the sons of man that thou visited him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he let nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are, are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part in the same, that through death he might destroy him and hath power of death, that is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not unto him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooveth him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in, pertain in things pertaining to God, and make reconciliation for the sins of people. For that he himself hath suffered to be tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. Now, uh, that is a very in-depth doctrinal um, uh, discussion point that we will not have time to dig into, but essentially what the, he, the author of Hebrews is saying is, first of all, that Jesus is better than the angels. Right. That even the angels, and, and that's weird for us to think about that because we, you know, uh, in our mind, an angel is uh, Clarence from, you know, it's a wonderful life. You know, the kind of bumbling angel trying to get his wings. That's kind of how we view angels in our modern time. That's what we see on TV. But back in their day, in the Bible days, an angel was a terrible supernatural being. And what the author is saying is Jesus is even greater than those angels. And why is that? Why is he greater? Well, there's many different things, but one that he mentioned here in particular that I want us to notice is in verse number 18. For that he himself have being suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. And what does is, what is this, uh, this word mean? That word secure means, it means to run when you hear a little child crying. If you look it up in the Greek, what it's saying is, look, if you ever heard your child cry, and I'm not talking about the fake crying where they're just, you know, complaining or fighting with their siblings. But I'm talking about you hear a bang in the other room and then you hear about five seconds of silence, except maybe just the inhaling of air. You can hear that coming through the, and you know it's real. Something really bad happened. And as a parent, what do you do? You jump up and you run. You know that they're, that's not, they're not kidding around this time, that they need help. They need someone to come and help them in their time of need. 
And the reason why Jesus is better than the angels is because he knows what it's like to suffer. The Bible says he knows what it's like to be tempted in all points. There's no temptation you've had that Jesus hasn't faced and got victory over. But because he knows what we're going through, he knows how to secure us. He knows how to run to us. He knows exactly what we need when we cry out in those moments of our life. So what's the message here from the book of Hebrews? It's don't go back to the old things. Don't go back to the old life. You've got something better now. And don't live your life for the visible. Live your life for the invisible, for the heavenly. And remember that salvation is not a work that you can do. It's not a thing you can earn. It's what Jesus Christ did once. And he sat down his completed work. And we can trust him because he can secure us. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time you've given us. Thank you for your word. Pray that you would bless the service to come. That you would uh, be with our pastor. That, um, that you would open our hearts this morning to receive the word this morning. That we'd have a, an appetite and a hunger for, for your word. And that, Lord, we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers only. We do pray for uh, uh, the special prayer request this morning, the Koontz family, Miss Mary, that you would just be with those families, give them grace and strength. In Christ's name we pray, amen.